0: Good morning. We're looking at Genesis 32, really not only a continuation in our series in Genesis, but Genesis 32 is really a continuation where I'm looking at tonight the or this morning, the wrestling of Jacob with, with God is really a continuation of Russell's sermon last week. So if, if you didn't hear that sermon last week, I encourage you to go listen to it. I, I don't encourage you on the basis of my own witness to hearing it and thinking it was good because I just got back from Africa in the middle of the afternoon yesterday. Basically, passed out and woke up this morning and haven't really had time. I had some time in the afternoon, but I just was too tired to want to listen, so I didn't listen. So, but I heard from several other people that it was quite good. Um, so I told Russ if attendance is down today, we know it's because of you last week. No, um, no, but I heard it was quite good, and so I encourage you to go listen to that because really, these two passages we're looking at go together quite well. So with me look with me at Genesis 32 starting in verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children. Remember he hasn't had they haven't yet had Benjamin and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had and Jacob was left alone. limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you recognizing that this is your word, written by your servant Moses, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. We recognize in this mysterious passage of Jacob wrestling with a man in the dark of night, wrestling with a man who is, in some manner, an appearance of you, our God, we recognize that this story has been written down not only because it happened in history, but because you want your people to learn from it. We pray that we would, that we would know that this is your word that your word does not return void. We pray that our hearts and minds would submit to your word and trust your word, that we'd walk in obedience to it, that we would give great thanks for it. And we pray that in this passage we would learn the lesson that you were teaching Jacob and Israel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Genesis 32 we really see the point at which Jacob um, really reaches maturity in the faith. He has gone as a man who we know who was, in some ways, though a believing man, quite immature in his faith, constantly grasping after the blessings of God in his own strength, to now, in Genesis 32, a man who was humble and repentant. In other words, a man who is mature in the faith. He matures... Really in reliance upon the Lord and the strength of his might rather than reliance upon his own understanding and his own planning. Look at Genesis 32 and verse 9. Genesis 32 and verse 9. And I want to look here because this is the prayer which Russell covered last week. But it's the prayer which the wrestling of Jacob is the ans- with God is the answer to. So we can't look at Jacob wrestling with God in the night apart from Jacob's prayer, because the Lord is coming in answer to this. And Jacob said, verse 9, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, And now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So here is Jacob, if you will, for the first time really getting it really getting it that it's only the Lord keeping his covenant promises in which he has any hope. That's, that's where his hope will be found. The Lord will be the one who delivers him. He's starting to finally understand that, and he's praying in akin, in akin with that. And so let's continue on as we think about that, that this repentant man is praying dependent upon God's provision He's trusting that the Lord will deliver him safely into the land, and the Lord will cause him to prevail over Esau. That's what he's doing. Now, I want to be clear, though. Jacob does not avoid planning. If you will, in Genesis 32, um, it's almost a marvelous display of planning and praying. Planning and praying, right? The wise man plans his steps. He plans it, but the Lord directs his steps. It's not that we are to sit back and passively wait for God to tell us what to do, we are to wisely plan. But the wise man does that in utter dependence upon God because he knows that God is the one who is going to deliver everything he needs. And Jacob is planning, and Jacob is praying. He's planning with reliance upon the Lord rather than reliance upon himself. Up till this point, however, this is where I want you to understand the contrast. Up to Genesis 32, all of Jacob's planning was self-reliant. It's it's not that in Genesis 32, Jacob finally realizes, I just got to, you know, sit back and let God do everything and passively wait, like a lazy person, right, who doesn't think things out at all. It's not what's happening. He's still planning. The change in Jacob, and we have to understand this, the change in Jacob is not he ceases to plan. The change in Jacob is he ceases to plan self-reliantly. He understands that he's utterly dependent upon the Lord. He turns from trust in himself to dependence on the Lord. So this morning, I want to look at the story that is, if you will, a picture of Jacob's maturity in the faith. And ironically, it's precisely when he's laid low regarding himself that he's exalted by the Lord. Now, this story is a historical story. It it happened. The author of Genesis is not presenting this to us as just some kind of parable of prayer. I've heard a lot of liberal scholars, well, read, technically. I I didn't listen to them. I read it, but, you know, you you read them so much, you start to feel like you're hearing them. I've read a lot of liberal scholars who basically say, this didn't actually happen. It's just a kind of a metaphor for Jacob praying. I want to say, no, they're on to something They know that this wrestling with God is related to Jacob's praying and dependence upon him. What they're wrong about is that this is not a historical story. In fact, it is a historical story. Yet, it is like a parable of Jacob's maturity in faith. We see this story, um, in this story, the strengthening of Jacob's faith in God and the corresponding repentance. Now listen to this. We see the strengthening of his faith in God and the corresponding repentance with regard to reliance upon himself. Those two things necessarily come together. When your faith in the Lord grows in strength, so too does your repentance of self reliance grow. You don't grow in the faith, it's not like you become mature in some days. Like, he's so mature in the faith that he just doesn't feel the need to repent anymore. It's not how that works, it's quite the opposite. And so we're going to see that in this picture. We also see this, really, in this story, the answer to Jacob's prayer in Genesis 32. So here's what I want to do. I want to just consider the story. That's the first point. We're going to look at the story. You're say, That's not a helpful point. It, you're right. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the story and think about it. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about three lessons that we can learn from it. Three lessons we can learn from it. So let's consider the story of Jacob wrestling with God. Look at Genesis 32 and verse 22. We'll just read 22 through 24. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of Of the day, now this story is historically mysterious. Um, Scholars are not quite sure what to do with this man who suddenly appears in the night after Jacob takes his family across the Jabbok River. So, so I want you to think about this. He takes his family across the river and all his possessions, and then he comes back across, if you will, in the middle of the night. And I'll get into this next week in Genesis thirty-three really stepping out in faith, saying, I'm going to put my family in the rear, if you will, and I'm going to go forward to Esau first. So he's starting to do that. Well, in the middle of the night, as he's crossed the river and he's there and his family's on the other side in safety, he's there in the middle of the night, and suddenly this man just appears out of nowhere, and he wrestles with him all night. That's a It's a historically odd occurrence. that That isn't the sort of thing that typically happens when you're out for a walk. You've crossed a river and then suddenly in the middle of the night here's a man who wrestles with you all night long. But he does. Now we learn in the passage that, the, that he, this man is an appearance of the angel of the Lord. We really learn that both in Hosea and here that this is an appearance of God, namely the angel of the Lord. It's a theophany. Um, a theophany is an appearance of theos or God. And he's appearing here As a man, as a man. We're told that, but given very little information about it. Look at Genesis 32 and verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So he knows that he met with God that night. So here's what we know. Jacob crosses the river at night, leaving his family behind and in the dark of night, wrestles with the man all night until the break of dawn. And that man is God. And then Hosea will tell us it was an angel. And the angel, what kind of angel he's referring to there is the angel of the Lord. It's God. Okay, so here we go. Jacob wrestles with a man at night who turns out to be God. That's odd, isn't it? Not as a wrestle him he... He wins the fight with God. Also, odd. I I hope you're picking up the tension as far as the mystery of this because um, you might not think that God would appear as a man, wrestle with you all night, and you would win. Right? Now, keep in mind this whole passage as we're reading it. Look at chapter 32 and verse 1 because I want you to notice This whole transition for Jacob as he goes to the promised land, verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And then he wrestles with God himself. Do you understand the bracketing, if you will, of this passage? It is not a normal day in the life of a man for the angels of God to meet you, and then later that day for God to appear as a man and wrestle with you all night long. That's a different sort of day. And so we're being told something very important is happening here. This isn't typical. This isn't ordinary. This is an extraordinary event in the life of Jacob. Clearly the Lord is making it clear to Jacob that he's with him. But the wrestling at night is fascinating as Moses intentionally leaves us. Now I want you to hear this. Moses is a good writer. So here's what he does. He intentionally leaves us as readers in the same mysterious darkness that Jacob faced that night. He wants us to experience this mysterious revelation in a manner similar to how Jacob experienced it. And it's deeply important in the life of Jacob. What's happening in the history of Israel? When I say Israel, I mean the nation. God has given them a land. He's given them offspring. And now, Jacob... Hear this. Now Jacob is about to take the tribes into the land. He's about to go from a foreign land into the land with the offspring. And as he is, he's about to be confronted with an enemy, the seed of the serpent, namely Esau. And so this strange scene is giving us a kind of confrontation between Jacob and God as Jacob is about to lead the people of Israel victoriously into the promised land over a foe, namely Esau. That's what it's setting us up for. Now, why do I bring that up? Because this this strange scene reminds us of God confronting Moses. Do you remember this in Exodus 4 as Moses is about to go, after God has called him to go to Egypt, to the Pharaoh, and tell him, I'm going to take God's people, you're going to let them go. We're going to go to the land to to worship you. And they're going to head to the promised land in the Exodus. In that text, namely Exodus 4, as Moses is on the way, God comes and confronts him. And says, basically, I'm going to kill you. Why? Because he had not circumcised his sons. This is the whole strange scene where Zipporah is like, You're a blood groom of bride to me. You guys, a bride, sorry, a bridegroom of blood to me. Bridegroom of blood to me. You guys remember that? You're like, what is going on? Well, that scene takes place as Moses is about to lead the people in deliverance from, from Egypt into the promised land. So it's a kind of similar place in the history of God's people, as we see here. Both of these scenes. Both Jacob wrestling with God before he's about to lead the people in the promised land over a foe, namely Esau, and Moses as he's confronted with God before he leads the people into the promised land in victory over a foe, namely Pharaoh. Both of these scenes are appearances of God as he confronts the representative head of Israel, the leader of his people. Both in the context of Israel being delivered from her enemies and taking the promised land, both of them are there. Both these scenes are the Lord confronting the representative head of Israel and testing him. What is the test? Here's the test, really simply. Will you trust and obey the covenant Lord and his promises and his commands, or will you trust in yourself and continue in disobedience? Jacob had been disobeying the Lord, trusting in himself. Moses had been disobeying the Lord, trusting in himself. And you are not going to be the representative head of our people, of the people being taken into the promised land, conquering foes through your self-reliance and disobedience. Jacob's wrestling with God then becomes a pivotal scene in the life of Israel. The Lord has given the great Abrahamic promises to Jacob and his eternal decree. They were his before he was even born. Jacob's father gave him the inheritance and the blessing of Abraham. The Lord appears to Jacob in the vision of Jacob's ladder and renews the covenant of Abraham with him. Jacob would inherit the land and numerous offspring and his offspring would be a blessing of the nations. God would be with Jacob and with his children after him. But Jacob is continually trying to make it happen himself. He's constantly taking matters into his own hands. He's trying to deliver the goods through his own schemes. He is like Abraham in that you say like Abraham remember he tried to do the same in a number of ways so Abraham and Sarah come up with this scheme for Abraham to produce children through Hagar because Sarah's womb was barren and you might say this scene of Jacob wrestling with God is not only parallel to the scene with Moses but it's also parallel to Genesis 22 where the scene at Mount Moriah How is it parallel to that? Because at Genesis 22, we learn, as God tests Abraham, that he finally believes that God will keep all his promises. Abraham knows. What does he know at that scene? He's being told, go up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice your only son. Now imagine, if the promise is, I will bless you and all your offspring after you in a land through this son that you, and Ab- that you, Abraham, and Sarah have given birth to, and then your son now is, let's say, a teenager, and the Lord comes to you and says, I know this is your only son. I know you're not able to have any more sons. Here's the thing. Take him on Mount Moriah and slaughter him. You know at that point, if you sacrifice him, that there is no human hope that any of God's promises are going to be kept. None. None. Abraham's attempts to secure the covenant blessings by his own efforts and his own schemes are at an end if Isaac is dead. They're at an end. But Abraham believes that God can raise Isaac from the dead. And on Mount Moriah, which by the way, if you don't know this, Mount Moriah is a mountain in Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 3.1, you can look it up. Not only is it a mountain in Jerusalem, but Mount Moriah is the mountain in Jerusalem where Solomon builds the temple. Don't think that's an insignificant historical fact. And on that mountain, the Lord provided a sacrifice in the place of Isaac, a ram in the thicket. And Abraham called it Mount Moriah, which means the Lord will provide. He trusts him. He trusts him. Well, this scene of Jacob wrestling with God is a parallel scene to that scene. This is the point that Jacob, like Abraham, really comes to rely upon the Lord. This is where Jacob realizes that only the Lord can bring his own promises to pass. Look at verse 25. Genesis 32, verse 25. When the man saw... That's the God-man there. (laughs) When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob... He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So you know the hip socket, um, the Hebrew, this is also language for the sciatic nerve. So God gives him sciatica. Now if you know what sciatica is, you understand how painful that is and what a limp it makes you walk with. So God gives him that. His hip is put out of socket. Now look, go on, verse 26. Then he said, let me go. So Jacob says, excuse me, the man says, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I want you to know that, note that Jacob would not let go of this man. He clung to this man all night, and what did he cling to him for? He wanted his blessing. He wanted his blessing. And the man does bless him. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, 28, and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, this is fascinating. Jacob's name is changed. You know who else's name was changed? Abrams. Changed to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. Abraham's name is central to understanding the Abrahamic covenant. God will save the nations, every tribe and tongue and nation through the offspring of Abraham. And now God changes his name, Jacob's name, to Israel. Now, you probably have a marginal note in your Bible that gives you two options for translating that. If you look down, it probably has a little footnote. And in the footnote, it may say something like that Israel means he strives with God or God strives. Do you guys have that kind of a marginal footnote? Most likely, it's it's actually a difficult translation. I want to explain why. Jacob is wrestling with God. He is striving with him. He's fighting with him, if you will, to obtain the blessing. He is doing so as Jacob, Jacob. By the way, so you know, the word wrestling here is. So his name, listen, his name is Jacob, Jacob. The word wrestling in Hebrew, he wrestles as Jacob. He's at the Yabak River. It's very much a series of puns. And what's he doing? He's wrestling as Jacob. What does Jacob or Yaakov mean? The deceiver, the usurper, the one who jerks at the heel, who struggles and schemes to have victory. Victory over Laban and victory over Esau victory over God and in, in grabbing hold of the blessings of Abraham. And now the Lord gives him a new name. That's kind of an ironic pun. You have fought with the Lord as Jacob, the schemer, the deceiver, the usurper. That's at an end. Now I'm changing your name to Israel. God fights or God strives. Here's the Lord, here's what the Lord is saying. And you can actually translate Israel this way. God will fight for you. You're no longer the man who trusts in his own strength and schemes and strives with God and man by the power of your own flesh. You trust in the Lord and the strength of his might. And friends, it's central to the covenant with Abraham. The Lord himself will fight for us. He will save us. Yahweh will deliver Israel and the nations. He will fight for us, namely in Christ and by his Spirit. So look at Genesis 32, verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So this man blesses Jacob then. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh. That's, That's that sciatic nerve. Do not eat the sinew of the thigh that's on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Please note, or don't miss really the language here. God blesses Jacob and leaves him with a limp. And Jacob realizes he's been delivered by God from God. Did you just catch that? So Jacob prevails over God in victory but when he, in the wrestling match, but when he does, what does he come to understand? I didn't actually prevail by my own strength. God delivered me. I wrestled with him, and he fought for me. Jacob knows he saw God face to face and lived. The Lord delivered him. He did win the wrestling match with God. Listen, he did win the wrestling match with God, if you will. But he did not win it by his own strength. He was delivered from God by God. And this new name, God will fight for you, combined with his limp, will remind him that he is utterly dependent upon the Lord. And Israel ceased to eat the sinew of the thigh from then on to remind themselves that they are a weak and humble people who, if you will, walk with a limp. But they are those whose Lord is the God who fights for them. They will limp out of Egypt by the mighty power of God. And saints, as Christians, we limp out of the grip of Satan, sin, and death not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God applying the work of Christ to us. We've been given a new name, the name of our triune God, and if we walk by faith, then listen, if you walk by faith, then you always walk with a limp. Always. We ever walk as those who know that the Lord opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He is a God who exalts the man who's laid low before him. And that really leads me to three lessons that I want to draw out this morning. Three lessons for us from Jacob wrestling with God. Here's the first one The wise man trusts the Lord to deliver him. Is that so I maybe I should say it this way The wise man trusts that the Lord will cause him to prevail over the Lord. Say, what? The wise man understands that. The Lord will cause him to prevail over the Lord. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean God gives grace to the humble. Jacob prevailed over God in the most surprising manner. He prevailed over God by humble trust in God. It was when Jacob stopped trying to gain blessing by his own strength and trusted God that he prevailed. Look at Hosea 12.3. This is how we know this. Look at Hosea 12.3. Like I told you, Hosea's just after Daniel, right at the beginning of these series of minor prophets, Hosea 12:3. <clears throat> the Lord has an indictment, an indictment against Judah, and will punish Jacob according to His ways. Just so you know, um, whenever God later in the, in the Old Testament uses Jacob as the name for Israel, a lot of times what he's saying is, as he's, he's indicting them, so in the context of indictment, a lot of times when the Lord indicts Israel, they're being indicted because they were in wicked sin, if you remember, and they're, being, and they're going to go into exile, and so because of their sin. So when he indicts them, oftentimes he doesn't call them Israel, he calls them Jacob, stressing what? Their self-reliance and lack of repentance. That's what he's doing. He will pay him according to his deeds. Look at verse 3. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. So in the womb, he he was named Jacob because he jerked at the heel. He was the usurper, the one who takes things by his own, if you will, efforts and schemes. And in his manhood, he strove with God. Now listen, he strove with the angel, so it's the angel of the Lord because it's God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. How? How did he prevail? Next line. He wept and sought his favor. How does the second line of Hosea 12.4 tell us God prevailed over the angel of the Lord in his wrestling? He wept and sought his favor. You understand that's not generally how you win a wrestling match? Have you ever seen a wrestler say, I'm gonna gonna win the national championship, I'm gonna get in there with this guy, and then I'm gonna start crying and say, please let me win. This This is how he won. He wept and sought his favor. This clearly tells us that Jacob prevailed by humble trust in the Lord. He ceased being the usurper who tries to grasp the blessing by his own strength and now he became like a poor beggar with an empty hand trusting God for the bread of life himself. And his limp is a permanent reminder that he is weak and God is his redeemer. God fights for him. His new name indicates that change as well. He was Jacob the deceiver, now he is Israel. God fights for you. The Lord delivered him from the Lord. Have you thought about that? The Lord delivered him from the Lord. If you're in sin, then you've been trying to grasp what the Lord has given you by your own efforts. That's what sin is. I want God's blessings and I don't want him. I don't want to get him his way, nor do I want to get him from him, I will take them myself my way. You want God's blessings but you don't want him nor do you want to trust him to give them? So you sin. You rebel against his law and do what you will. And thus you rebel. You attempt to take them for yourself. This rebellion, this separation from God, from God brings upon you the just judgment of the Lord. He, listen, he is the enemy you must fear. Say, I fear death, I fear sin, I fear Satan, but above all, you fear the Lord. His wrath bears down on you for your sin, and there is nothing, no thing that you can do to save yourself from it. That's why Romans 5, 8 through 9 is such glorious good news, so I want to look at that briefly. Look at Romans 5, 8. Romans 5, 8, I want to show you that God saves you from God. Romans 5.8 <clears throat> But God shows his love for us. Notice this. God demonstrates or shows to make a display of something. God is love and God is now going to put his love on display. So God demonstrates or shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God shows his love for us and putting his son in our place to take wrath for us. Now now notice, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, Christ's blood, more, much more shall we be saved by him, From the wrath of God. Did you guys just follow that logic? Who do you need to be saved from, sinner? God. His wrath. Who saves you from God? God. In the person of his son. Why? Because he loves you. See, the father sent his son to deliver us. The father sent his son to fight for us. We don't trust in ourselves for our deliverance from the Lord. We trust in the Lord, in the Lord who delivers us from himself. God saves us from God. And you need to understand this. Only God can save you from God. Only God, now hear this, only God would save you from the just wrath that comes from himself. We will scarcely Give our lives for a good man, let alone an enemy. That's what Paul has just said in Romans 5, by the way. Only God is the God who is the God of all grace. Only him. So the question is, do you know him? So you cannot tick up a list of good works by which you somehow prevail over God's just wrath against your sin? You can't. You can't save yourself from God. Only God can save you from God. And he did so in the person of the God-man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you trust in him? Are you trusting in him to save you? You need to look to Christ and receive his grace. If not, you remain in your sin. And your greatest foe is God himself. And you can't save yourself from him. Only he can save you. And frankly, friends, if you know anything about having enemies, only he would save you. So we look to Christ and receive his grace. Second lesson. The wise man trusts the Lord to fight his enemies for him. The wise man trusts the Lord to fight his enemies for him. If you will, you might say, the wise man prevails over the Lord by the power of the Lord, and the wise man prevails over his enemies by the power of the Lord. Are you guys getting the theme here? What do you prevail over in your own flesh? Nothing. Nothing. So, The wise man trusts in the Lord to fight his enemies for him. Jacob did not deliver himself from Esau or Laban. We understand that? He didn't. He will not deliver himself from Esau in the next passage. He doesn't deliver himself from Laban. He schemed. But it became obvious that God delivered him and not his own plans. Listen, if you're not aware of that, then you haven't sufficiently considered that exposing sheep and goats to a colored branch, does not produce the color of offspring that you were hoping for from those sheep and goats. Jacob has goats and sheep that are speckled, spotted, mottled, and striped by virtue of stripping some branches and putting in front of them while they mated. You know, that, you know enough about biology to understand that you don't get the colors of offspring by looking at that color during mating. You guys get that? Okay? So then how? That's Jacob's scheme And yet God blesses him and he prevails. And you recognize this was the Lord, not Jacob. This was not his scheme that caused him to prevail over Laban. This is the Lord's providential kindness to him that causes him to prevail over Laban. Further, you understand, I hope, that Rachel and Leah's wombs are not opened by themselves and they're not opened by mandrake leaves when they get in this thing of you know, exchanging mandrake leaves because they had this superstition in the ancient Near East that mandrake leaves produced a kind of fertility. That's not how it happened. It came from the Lord. We all understand that, right? God did this. God did this. Moses is not the true deliverer of Israel from Egypt either. God did that too. In a way, you might say Moses is a deliverer, but Moses is only a deliverer in as much as God worked through him. If you remember from the very beginning, God calls him, and Moses is like, oh, I don't speak well. I can't go talk to Pharaoh. Why would he listen to me? I'm not good standing in front of the most powerful man on earth and telling him what to do. It's just not my strength. right?" And the Lord's like, I made your mouth. I'll be with your mouth. You'll be fine. Go do it. But why me? I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, so then Moses goes, and God delivers them. Now now look at Exodus 14. Exodus 14. I want you to see this language. Exodus 14. It's the second book of the Bible, so it should be easy to find. Exodus 14. And look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people this is the people as they're going to cross the Red Sea. You guys remember this passage? They're going to cross the Red Sea miraculously on dry ground. Just stop and consider that. If you just separate a river right now, if you separate it, even if you argued that, you know, the first miracle is you separated the water from the water so that there's, there's a place to walk through. But the waters get freshly separated and the ground is dry. You understand that's Even more miraculous, if you will. So here they are on dry ground as they're about to pass. Here's what Moses says. Listen to what he says. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. They're going to be drowned in that river. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for them. He's their deliverer. Now, And say, okay, great. What does that have to do with me? Look at Jude. Look at Jude. Second to last book of the Bible. So we're in the second book of the Bible. Now you're in the second last book of the Bible. It's just a little, it's one chapter letter just before Revelation. Look at verse 5. Jude 5. And I'm turning you here because you need to see this yourself. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, now notice the, notice, here comes the parenthetical, the thing you're going to learn about Jesus. That Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus delivered Israel from Egypt and prevailed over their enemies for them. And in this story of Jacob wrestling with a man who is God, who do you think is there with him? Blessing him, promising to fight for him, redeeming him, and giving him a new name. Saints, Jesus is the God-man who's come to deliver you. He's the God-man who prevailed over Satan's sin and death in his cross and resurrection. Listen to Hebrews 2. Turn there, just listen. Since therefore the children share in in flesh and blood, that's us. We share in flesh and blood. He, Jesus, likewise himself partook of the same things. In other words, he took flesh and blood to himself. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Through his own death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death, that's us, were subject to lifelong slavery. Do You hear what Jesus did? He came and took on our enemies and conquered them in his own death. He fought for us. So here's the question. Do you trust in Jesus Christ as your deliverer from the wrath of God and the schemes of the world, the flesh, and the devil. He is the only Savior savior who can rescue you from Satan, sin, and death. And if you're in him by faith, you no longer have to be in slavery to fear of death, for God himself fights for you. Jesus fought for you by going to the cross and dying in your place. And on the third day, Raising from the dead, conquering the grave for you. You could not conquer it. It's not an enemy that you could defeat. You can scheme. Listen, you're all going to face death. Do you understand that? It's coming. It's coming for every one of us. You cannot prevail over it. But Christ did. And because he did, in him you will. God himself fights for you. Third lesson. The wise man trusts the Lord in his present sufferings. The wise man trusts the Lord in his present sufferings by accepting them as coming from the God who also upholds you through them. If you're wise, you trust the Lord in your present sufferings by accepting them as coming from the Lord who also upholds you through them. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves, doesn't he? Hebrews 12, uh, 5 and 5 makes this clear. Suffering may be painful for the present time, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. We all face a number of trials, a number of kinds of suffering. Sometimes that suffering is brought brought upon us um, as as a kind of test of faith. And sometimes that suffering is brought upon us as a rod of discipline. I don't always know why the Lord brings the suffering or the trial. I I don't always know. I know it's for one of two reasons if you're a believer. It's either a test of your faith, which we see happen in the Bible numerous times with believers, or it's a rod of discipline. Either way, it's given to you to strengthen your faith. Not to weaken it. It's given to you to weaken your reliance upon yourself because you face it and recognize there is no way I can do this on my own. I need Him. I need Him. And frankly, friends, you don't always need to try to figure out if it's a rod of discipline or a test of faith. What difference does it make? Here's the bottom line trust in the Lord and not yourself. That's what's happening. The Lord is intentionally making you weak so he can make you strong in faith. Calvin, John Calvin spoke to this quite well. He's, Calvin actually spoke to how this wrestling in this passage is a picture of how all God's servants wrestle with him in this world. Calvin actually says that he's testing and trying, trying us so we can strengthen our faith. And when the Lord tries us, Calvin says he's he's descended into the arena of this world to wrestle with us, to test our faith and correct us of our sin and pride. In all our trials, if you will, we are wrestling with God in some way. You all feel it when you are, as you're up in the night and you are wearied by the wrestling with God over what is happening and how you'll be delivered. And Calvin says we must re- rely upon the Lord to fight for us if we're to win. Now, now here's, here's what he says about it. The question now arises. It's a kind of a long quote, but I'm going to read it to you. The question now arises. Who is able to stand against an antagonist at whose breath alone all flesh perishes and vanishes away? At whose look the mountains melt at whose word or call the whole world is shaken to pieces. How can you stand against the one who told the sea thus far and no further? Who hung the stars? How do you stand in wrestling against him? That's what Calvin's asking. How is that possible? To attempt any kind of contest with him would be reckless contempt. But it is easy to untie this knot for we do not fight against him except by his own power and with his own weapons. See, if you stand against him on your own, that's a foolish, reckless contempt. The only way you can do it is with his power and with his weapons. For God, he goes, Calvin goes on, for God, having challenged us to this contest at the same time, furnishes us with the means to resist. So that he he both fights against us and for us. In short, he arranges the conflict in such a way that while he attacks us with one hand, he defends us with the other. He supplies us with more strength to resist than he uses to attack us. We may rightly say that he fights against us with his left hand and he fights for us with his right hand. For while he opposes us in a gentle way, he gives us invincible strength so we can overcome. So herein lies the question. Are you ready to lay down your scheming, your, own tr- your trust in your own strength and might, and to trust in Christ to fight for you and in you by the power of his Holy Spirit? Are you ready to do that? Saints. That's what we're called to do. It's called to do. That's what the wrestling with Jacob teaches us. Psalm 63. I want to end with this as we begin our prayer. <clears throat> and maybe here's your homework. Why don't you meditate on Psalm 63 all week? There's homework for you. I want personal application. Believe in Jesus and meditate on Psalm 63. There's your application. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. That's the place where he dwells. Beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Father, we do come before you recognizing that it is only as you fight for us, that we are delivered from your wrath and from our enemies. It is only as you fight for us that we are, as your children, delivered from trials and tests. In other words, we recognize, Father, that our schemes... Our trust in ourselves, our pride, delivers us from nothing. It is you who are our deliverer in the person of your son, God, and by the work of your spirit. We are thankful that Christ has been sent for us. That he has prevailed over Satan's sin and death, over the world, the flesh, and the devil. That he has prevailed even over the just wrath of God that bears down upon us. And he's done this for us in our place. And that he is at your right hand, ever interceding for us. And his spirit is in us, ever interceding within us, so that we might prevail over the trials and tests that are brought in our lives to bring us low so that you might exalt us through faith in yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.